If you're visiting, welcome. If you and I have not met, my name is Brian. Hey, Big. And we're uh, really about to wrap up Luke. We're going to have this morning, this is the final chapter of Luke 24. We'll do one more passage in Luke 24 next week, and that will wrap it up. But we're going to be in chapter 24, beginning in verse 13 this morning. Luke 24, verse 13. When I was in seminary, I started reading, as far as I know for the first time, the, the short stories of Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor, highly regarded Southern writer, lived in Milledgeville, Georgia, and wrote novels, wrote uh, about writing, but she, she's really known for her short stories. There's a big collection you can buy of her short stories. and So I started reading those, thought they were fascinating, and a friend of mine who studied Southern literature in college, said to me, you know what, there's kind of a template you can use when you, when you read Flannery O'Connor's short stories. He said, here's what to look for. In, in her short stories, usually you'll have a character that seems to be a good person, and then you'll have another character that seems to be like a monster person. And what she will do by the end of the story is she will expose the seemingly good person to be the real monster. And so I took this kind of you know, template, little decoder ring, and started reading the stories, and it just almost always worked. I'm sure there's somewhere it doesn't work, but it, it, it really opened up how to read these stories. This, this passage at the end of Luke, is, it's, it's significant in a lot of ways, but one thing I really want you to listen for as we read it is that in this passage, Jesus essentially gives us the lenses, you know, the, the decoder ring, if I can put it that way, for understanding the Old Testament. And, and I bet that just about every person sitting here right now would say, man, it, it's hard enough for me to understand the New Testament sometimes. Town names, people names that I don't know, or Revelation has these confusing images. But Old Testament, I just feel like I'm cooked. I don't know the names, the places, the way it says things. Um, the Old Testament, by some calculations, is over three-fourths of our Bible. It's not half. It's over three-fourths. It's Jesus' Bible. It's the Apostles' Bible. And so it, it is really critical that if we're going to read it, and I hope we will read it, that we read it rightly. If, if Jesus here is saying, I want to give you the lenses for how you read these rightly, He is giving us an incredible gift. So uh, there's some weird things in this passage. Jesus vanishes in front of people who are looking at him in this passage. Uh, Jesus walks alongside people who are his disciples who would, who would recognize him, and they, and they supernaturally can't recognize him. So I just want to say there are things in this passage I don't know how to understand or explain, but don't miss the forest for the trees. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 13. Now, when it begins by saying that very day, this follows Luke's account of the resurrection. So that very day means what we would call Easter Sunday. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? 
and they stood still, looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? while he opened to us the Scriptures. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father... As we gather this morning, it feels for all the world like the greatest thing that we need right now is more money. Or the greatest thing that we need right now is rest or vacation. Or maybe a parent feels that the greatest thing he or she needs is for a kid to turn out okay. Or that the greatest thing our nation needs is for what we aspire to politically or culturally. If that would just come true, that our greatest need would be met. And we want to say to you together that our greatest need is that we would know you and that we would be known by you. So we pray that you'd work through your word and help us to hear you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I probably should bring this up every couple of years. I think I've mentioned it once before, but I would like to share with you about the worst sermon that I ever preached since being ordained. I did preach some before I was ordained, and those sermons were, they were identified as dangerous um, and spiritually harmful. But the worst sermon that I've ever preached 
since I've been ordained was uh, when I was a campus minister and and since I, I didn't have a Sunday, you know, congregation that I was responsible for, I would preach to students during the week, but then sometimes I could go fill in for other preachers when they were away. And um, so I was preaching in Abbeville, Mississippi. And it's interesting how many Mississippi uh, towns are named after South Carolina towns. You can tell that South Carolinians had a hand in settling Mississippi. So I was in Abbeville, Mississippi. And I preached on the fourth commandment. And that's the commandment about remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. And uh, it went well. In fact, one thing that tells me it seemed to go well was that one of, uh, one of the older members came up to me afterward. I think he was one of, the, one of the elders of that church. And he said, whoever skipped church today missed a good sermon. And I thought, thank you. And I, and I think I agreed with him. Until I was driving home and it hit me with just this wave of regret that I never mentioned Jesus in that sermon. And, I, and I, I really do believe, I think I could find my notes, I would stand by every assertion that I made, that, that what I was saying about the law and about what it means, at some level, what it means, and about the heart of God that He wants us to have rest, I, I would stand by all those things, but the problem is, I think I could have gotten through that whole sermon and if there had been a Pharisee standing up in the back of the sanctuary, leaning against the back wall, I think he could have nodded affirmingly the whole sermon. When you have a gathering in Christ's name, you don't ever want a Pharisee to be able to nod through the whole sermon approvingly. And I just share that with you to say, don't ever let me do that again. But also, I, I think that well, Jesus gave the best insight for why I must have done that. It's embarrassing. But here's what Jesus said. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I sort of winced to admit it, but it, it must have been the case that when I was doing my sermon prep and making my notes, and then when I stood up to preach, my heart was not full of Christ. And it came out of my mouth. Uh, and by the way, I attended a seminary where the name of the preaching textbook is Christ-centered preaching. If you don't mention him, your sermon probably was not Christ-centered. But again, I, I, I think that we are alike in that sense. We, we, we come with hearts that are prone not to see, especially in the Old Testament, what the Scriptures are actually about. So I want to I think about this morning two things. Scripture and our hearts, and then Scripture and the main character. Scripture and our hearts. Uh, an Anglican <clears throat> bishop from the 1800s named J.C. Ryle said this. It's short and it's really good. He said, the heart is the main thing in true religion. Really, you could say that across religions. The heart is the main thing in true religion. Now again, just for clarity, when we think heart, we either tend to think of the physical organ in our chest, or we think of feelings. Biblically, your heart is just the control center, unseen, of your whole life. And sometimes we'll really decouple 
thinking and feeling. And we'll say, I think we're using our heads here too much and we really need to use our hearts. Scripture doesn't talk that way. You're thinking and you're feeling and your willpower and decisions, just that control center of the real us, that's your heart. It's not an organ, it's, your, it's you and me. <clears throat> and it's where the Lord looks. You know, there's that great statement in the Old Testament that says that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, not the beating organ in our chest, but He looks at the real you and the real me. So where do you see the heart coming up in this passage? Uh, Go back to verse 17. This is what we would call Easter midday, Easter afternoon. This is just a few miles, if that, from Jerusalem. And there's two disciples. One is named, one's not. Cleopas and someone else. Could be his wife, could be a fellow traveler, we don't know. Verse 17, he, Jesus, said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with, with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Now, now stop and just let the, get that in your mind's eye. They're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. We, we don't know where Emmaus is. Maybe they were celebrating Passover as his disciples, and they're just brokenhearted and devastated. And so they're walking back and they're talking about what happened. Jesus walks up. It doesn't say how they don't know it's Jesus just says they're kept from recognizing him. Apparently, God just does that to them. He walks up and says, what are you talking about? And it says they stop. And they could have kept talking, but they are just so overwhelmed, they stop. And they just shut down and look sad. Verse 18, then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now, this next sentence is a real window into how endearing Jesus actually is. This is the day He rose from the tomb. And even if these two people can't see it, He actually has holes in His hands and feet. He rose from the dead that morning. And standing just a little ways from Jerusalem, He says to them, What things? What things are you talking about that happened? Now, let me ask you something. We've been going through Luke, and already in Luke, I mean, this is just about the end, we've seen Jesus read people's minds. For instance, uh, we looked at a passage where there's uh, Jesus is at a meal at a Pharisee's house, and the Pharisee's named Simon. It's not Simon Peter, it's a Pharisee named Simon. And and he's self-righteous. And this sinful woman with a bad reputation in that city comes into this meal setting and she's crying on Jesus' feet and wiping his feet with her hair and she's anointing his feet with perfume. And, And Simon the host just thinks to himself, doesn't say, he just thinks to himself, well, if this man were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman is touching him, that she's a sinner. And Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Just into his heart. So Jesus has established, He doesn't need you to tell Him something to learn it. So why would He ask those questions? What are you talking about? He he can read their minds. Um, The church confesses from the Scriptures that Jesus is God. He's truly man and He's truly God. So let's back the question up. 
why would God ever ask a question? Did you know very early in the Bible, God asked a question? Genesis chapter 3, as soon as sin entered the world, the first things we hear God saying are questions. Adam and Eve sin, and they become ashamed, and they hide, and God shows up and says what? Where are you? Is he asking for information? Does he know where they are? So why is God asking questions? Why does God ever ask questions? To draw us out. When Jesus says, what are you talking about? What things that happened in Jerusalem, what is he doing? He is drawing out from their hearts. And it's interesting because what he addresses is, as their problem is not biblical illiteracy. All right, look at this. Verse 25, O foolish ones. He doesn't say, O foolish ones, you don't know the content of the prophets. He says, verse 25, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. This is important for us to understand. We tend to think that whether it's one verse or a paragraph or a chapter, we tend to think that when we come to Scripture, we show up neutral. And then hopefully we're going to learn something from the content. The Scriptures indicate that none of us show up neutral to Scripture because we show up with hearts that are actually prone to misinterpret. And I'm saying that as someone who interprets Scripture as part of what I'm paid to do in my vocation. And I've just told you a grand example of when I misinterpreted it. Um, what, what would have been the default mode of misinterpreting the Scriptures in their day, in the first century? In other words, if, if you were going to sum up, the Scriptures are mostly about or really about, if you didn't put God in the blank, what do you think people in that day would have said? Like these two disciples. They probably would have said the Scriptures are about Israel. It's about us. And so uh, we're seeing these descriptions and prophecies and promises that one day God's going to fix everything. One day God's going to deliver us from all our enemies. One day, God's people are going to be happy and secure in Jerusalem and on Mount Zion. And one of these days, God is going to, <clears throat> excuse me, He's going to vanquish all our enemies. And He's going to do that through the Messiah. And Cleopas and this other disciple are walking away from Jerusalem. And the person they thought was going to do that was killed. And as far as they know, he's still dead. And Rome is just as much in control as it was a day or two ago when they crucified him. I mean, look in verse 21. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. But what would re redeem Israel mean? Drive out our enemies, conquer our enemies, destroy our enemies. Messiah come and sit on his throne in Jerusalem and we be the people of God that we're supposed to be, and the earth be restored. And that didn't happen. 
But that's what we thought was going to happen. If that's what would be their default mode, what do you think our default mode would be? What would it, how would we fill in the blank? The Bible is primarily about, probably if we were honest, we would fill it in, the Bible is about me. There's a sociologist named Christian Smith, and years ago he and a team did a very, very deep dive about what is the real religion of Americans, especially the younger generation coming up. Not what is the professed religion, not denomination, creed. What is your real religion when you really tell the truth? And what his team of researchers dubbed the conclusion was the real religion of Americans is, now this is jargony, but it's important, moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic meaning the point of religion is that we be good people. And therapeutic, the main thing I need is not atonement. The main thing I need is not cleansing or redemption. What I need is empathy and support and guidance. Because my road is hard. People don't know how hard my road is. And deism is that I think there is a God. The God made everything. He doesn't... Ri- he, she, it doesn't really interpersonally deal with me. But yeah, there, there's a God. That's the real religion of Americans. If we come with even a version of that to the Scriptures, how are we going to handle them? And, and I, I just would say this again. If Jesus is saying, look, I want to tell you what the Scriptures really are about, especially Genesis through, for him, it would have been Second Chronicles. For us, it's Genesis through Malachi, the way we order it. I want to tell you what the clean pages of your Bible are actually about. Then he's giving us a treasure. So what is it? It's that the Bible is about a main character. Scripture has a main character. Let's pick back up after verse 25. He says, O foolish ones, slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Then verse 26, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. A little bit later in this same chapter, it's almost the very end of Luke, Jesus appears to the apostles and other believers. And guess what? It says he does the same thing that he explains from Moses and the Psalms and the prophets, what the Scriptures say about him. Now, this is late in his ministry, almost the end. Look at the beginning of his ministry. In italics there below our passage, look at this excerpt from John 5. This is what he said to some Jewish religious leaders early in his ministry. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me. For if you believed Moses, you would believe Me, for He wrote of Me. No devout Jew would say, you know, Moses wrote about Me in his writings. The only way you could say that and it be true is quite literally if you are the Messiah. 
This is an opportunity for me to say something that I hope you've picked up on by now, but I want to be explicit. The explicit aim of downtown Presbyterian is that every sermon, every small group Bible study, every community group gathering always gets you to Jesus Christ. Through any passage, through any part of Scripture, that we always get to Jesus Christ. And this is really important. It's not just that that's, oh, that's our cool little niche as a church. You know, like that's part of our branding is we're always going to get you to Jesus. But it's actually not just because this is what Jesus models. It's not just because he says, the scriptures are about me. It's actually for impact. Look in verse 31. You know, Jesus acts like he's going to walk further, and that's interesting that Jesus acted. And they say, no, 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 it's getting late. Stay with us. You know, the day's late. Eat with us. And so he's at the table with them, and it says he took the bread. This is verse 30. took the bread, blessed, broke it, gave it to them. By the way, Christians for two millennia, when they see that bundle of verbs, it kind of pings that he took, blessed, broke, gave. That should ring a bell. And verse 31, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And then get this in verse 32, because we're thinking about the heart. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Now, if you don't hear anything else I've said, please hear this part. Their hearts did not burn just from being in physical proximity to him. Their hearts burned when he opened the scriptures to them. And here's how important that is. Look at the next verse, verse 33. They rose that same hour, returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven. Why is that important? Who's that talking about? The apostles. Why aren't there 12? Because Judas Iscariot is no more. Do you understand that Judas Iscariot lived with Jesus for years? And there are men and women and children in this room who experience him more deeply, even though they've never seen him. Some of you experience him more deeply than Judas did, and he lived with him. Like, have you ever thought to yourself, I just wish Jesus was here for a minute? You know? I mean, in a way, I hope you felt that. But what might be behind that is, if, you know, if he was just here, if I could just confide in him, if I could just ask him what to do, if I could just touch him, I would have more of him. And this is so counterintuitive. There were people who had him right there who don't have as much of him as you do right now by the Holy Spirit and from his word. This hit me one time when um, I've shared with you that for, for several years I went to a midweek Bible study at Tabernacle Baptist here in town, and it was mostly me and old women. And so the pastor asked one of these old women to open in prayer for this Bible study I think this is almost word for word. She opened in prayer and said, Lord Jesus, 
we know you are so busy, but we just ask that you might stop by this room just for a little bit. And I'm telling you, it felt like a door was about to go. And, but and she wasn't asking for him to physically walk in the room. I, she knew that he's seated at the Father's right hand. But she was asking that through us being in your word and you working by your spirit, will you, will you make it like you are in this room? And did you know that is real? Understanding the Old Testament is daunting. You know, you, you, especially if you're new to the Bible, I want you to hear me say this. You may be feeling like, it's all I can do to read John 3.16. I don't know about Haggai, you know, or Zephaniah. I don't think I'm going to tackle that. Okay, I get it. Um, let, let me go back to, to my problems with preaching. When, when I had a series coming up on the Ten Commandments, and this was probably after that thing I botched in Abbeville, I actually called a former professor who wrote Christ-centered preaching. And I said, okay, look, I know, I know you covered this in class. I know you covered this, but just humor me. I'm about to do a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. How do I preach Christ from the Ten Commandments? And he said, okay, every time you come to the text, ask two questions. Number one, what is this showing me about us who need redeeming? need forgiving, need transformation, need rescuing. What is this showing me about us? And then what is this showing me about God who does the redeeming, does the cleansing, does the rescuing? He said, if you will keep asking those two questions, the text will begin to lead you to Christ. I re- There's no one-size-fits-all way to do this. But I commend that you get something like that in your toolbox. Because what will start to happen is that unfamiliar passages start to lead you to the one who can actually satisfy your soul. And that maybe Zephaniah and Haggai really can benefit people like us. Uh, There's also some instructions on the back of your bulletin. Don't turn there now. Don't turn there now. But that might help you in some further discussion and thought. Let me end with this. Um, I, I heard an interview with someone who knew Paul McCartney, Sir Paul McCartney. And, uh, you know, Paul McCartney lost his first wife, Linda. Then he had a short-lived marriage to another woman, and then I believe he's, he's still in his third marriage. But his first marriage was Linda. And this man that knew Paul McCartney said, Every love song that he ever wrote was about Linda. Can you imagine that? Because this, this is not a marginal songwriter. I mean, can you imagine being asked if you were Linda, wow, that long and winding road's really pretty. Who do you think he was thinking about? Um, me? That'd be pretty great. <laughs> you know, this is where it's tempting to say, what is God thinking about when He breathes out Scripture? You know, it's tempting as to say, us? He loves us so deeply. He has compassion on all that He's made. 
but it is his son that he looks at. And he's so moved by him that even audibly from heaven, he'll say, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Did you know that that even got into Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Obadiah and Leviticus? You know, we can grow up. We don't have to live off old capital. We don't have to live off borrowed conclusions. We need teaching. We need preaching. But some of you have never read the whole Bible. And you may have been in the church for decades. I I want you to feel new courage to take up the Scriptures. If you're new to them, don't start with Leviticus. But take up the Scriptures and learn how to ask of every passage, what am I seeing about us that needs so much help? And such a deep forgiveness and salvation. And what am I seeing about God who does it? And let that road take you to the main character. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would feed us from your word and that we won't be afraid of it. We pray that we would tremble at your word, but we pray that we won't be so intimidated by the Bible and by the Old Testament that we don't read it and don't study it and don't ever hide some part of it in our hearts. Help us, Lord. We're prone to misinterpret the Word. Help us. Help community groups. Help individuals. Help families. Help pastors. Help us rightly divide Your Word. Lord Jesus, may we keep seeing You again and again. And as we do so, give us Your flesh and Your blood. Feed us with Yourself. We ask this in Your name. Amen.